before I read uh, the scripture passage, I did want to introduce our speaker uh, for today. Um, our speaker is the Reverend David Chong. He and uh, Sonia and Eliana have been worshiping with us for since, I believe, the summer. They've been worshiping with us. They are part, he is um, ordained in the KAPC, but he is making his way over to the great PCA. And, and so he's worshiping with us. They're, they're having a, a great time. And uh, I needed some help. And I've heard great things about Reverend David. And I know he was just taking this time to relax and, and be a part of our church. But I asked a, a favor, and, and he obliged. And so we have a great honor of hearing a Reverend David Chong come and speak to us. And so I just wanted to introduce him before he uh, got up. And you didn't think, who is this guy? So let me read for us uh, the passage in which he will be preaching from. It, he, it is coming from the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 to 26. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to introduce myself again. Uh, my name is David, and uh, my wife and I, my wife and daughter and I have been worshiping at ACC for about six months now, and um, we've really come to appreciate this church, um, the teaching, the leadership, uh, the sisters, the brothers here. Um, until now, pretty much the only way we were able to serve was through tithes, offerings, and just attending worship. Um, so we're really thankful for this opportunity to give back, um, to, to, to serve. I, I mean, we're praying for David, Pastor David, to, um, to find rest and for me to be able to help out in this way to give more of myself. It's, it really is um, something to be thankful for. So I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Uh, will you join me now uh, in, in praying for this word? Heavenly Father, perhaps it's too simple to say this, but it's probably the most fitting way to begin. And I just want to say, Lord, that we need you. We need you. And in needing you, we are not, we are not dismayed. Our trust is not in something faulty. 
something that looks strong on the outside but is hollow on the inside. Our trust is well placed in you. And Father, we pray that as you continue to open our hearts and our minds to see how great you are, that you would, Lord, shape our prayer life so that we may see our lives themselves changed for your glory. We pray for this church. We pray, Lord God, that you would make us, as we just heard from Pastor Jeffrey, a church that prays. Lord, help us, encourage us to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. J.I. Packer, probably one of the most influential Christians of our time, this is what he says about the Christian life. Christians who look at God, so to speak, through the wrong end of a telescope, thus reducing him to pygmy proportions, cannot hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. I think it's rather easy to understand what he means by that. That if we want to improve uh, any part of our Christian lives, we should begin with how we see our God, that to have a great view of God, a glorious view of God, well, that empowers our lives as Christians. It, it informs our lives. Our hope, in the words of Father Gregory Boyle, is that our sense of God will grow as expansive as our God is. Each tiny conception of God gets obliterated as we discover more and more the God who is always greater. And that's what this passage, I think, is doing. It's obliterating our tiny conceptions of God to challenge us to think about our lives and what it should look like, especially prayer. If that greater, more glorious view of God should make its impression on us, one of the many excellent ways in which we will see it impact our lives is our prayer life, how we pray. So that's what we'll consider today. Four ways that this text uh, expands our view of God and how that might shape our prayers. Here are the four ways, and if you don't remember it all, it's fine. We'll go through it, okay? Um, he is a deeply personal, relational, and loving father someone we want to pray to. He is a redeeming God, someone we can pray to all the time. He is an all-knowing God, someone we pray to with a sense of peace. And he is an all-powerful God, someone we can pray to with hope. Okay? At the heart of this passage in verse uh, 22 is something that can be easily missed, but, but we really shouldn't miss it. For the first time in Scripture, for the first time, God uses the, the, the term son, son, while referring to a specific people, in this case, the Israelites. And right there, 
and that, in saying Israel is his son, obliterates any conception of God that makes him detached, indifferent, or perhaps even impersonal. For many of us, before we came to the Christian faith, we believed in a, a kind of spiritual world, right? We, we knew or felt that there was more to this world than what we just see and feel and taste and touch. A spiritual, let's call it, energy. Something we were supposed to absorb and harness or maybe even channel back into the world. But it was an impersonal thing. God is a personal being. We don't pray to an energy because it neither hears us nor responds to us. But we have a God who is personal, who hears us and responds. We're not talking to a wall or an inanimate picture. We're talking to the living God who hears you and responds to you. It does not fall on deaf ears. But to go further, when, when God says that Israel is, is like a son to him, he is, to, he is saying something more than just that he is a personal God, but that he has a deep, meaningful, intentional relationship with Israel that goes beyond just knowing there's a God exists, that a God exists. If I can use a, a, an analogy, it would be like a, a Yelp review that we love to read for a new restaurant that opened up nearby. This is not a reviewer saying, this restaurant serves food. No, the review is going to say something like, this restaurant serves the most amazing food. And we read them, we're thinking, wow, I don't know if I've ever tasted anything like that. And now I want to go and check it out. Right? When God says here, Israel is like a son to me, saying, there's more to, to me and your relationship with me than just knowing that I exist. It's not, I make food. I make the most, I make the most elaborate food, uh, the, the most delicious food. I make something that you, have, you want to taste. You're searching for it. You know it's there, but you haven't yet tasted it. This intimate relationship with me as your father and you, my son. And we long for that. We want that. We want that. Elsewhere in the, and throughout Scripture, for example, Deuteronomy 14, God again uses uh, the language of son, but there he adds, my treasured possession. My treasured possession. Now, there's a phrase there that we could just meditate on all day. You're wanted. You're treasured by this life and life-giving Love and lover God. You're wanted. If a slow cooker's fuse just happened to blow and the whole, whole house went up on fire, you'd be the first thing that God would rush in and, and rescue while the world in anger lashes out on Twitter. You're, you're treasured. This is a God 
we want to pray to you far more than the God we currently think about praying to. God who is greater than our tiny conception of God. But with sonship comes uh, service, and this too we must not overlook. Whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, when you think about sonship to the Father, included in that is a dynamic of obedience and service. Obedience and service. And we see that here. He, he says to, to, to Moses to tell this to Pharaoh that Israel is like a firstborn son to him. Let him go, let Israel go, so that Israel may worship and serve him. It's God rescuing you from being under the roof of someone else so that you would come back under his roof into his loving house. And then when, as you call that place your home, well, you start picking up chores around the house. You start thinking about how do I keep this home that I love? How do I serve this father that I love? Service. Paul takes up that very same language in Romans chapter 6 where he says you were, you were slaves to sin and now using the same word, slaves, to righteousness. It's not a freedom from something in order to serve ourselves. It's a freedom from sin to serve God. For Israel, was this freedom from Pharaoh to serve God, their father. And that is to say that if we've used our freedom as a license to sin, a license to live in our idolatry, or a license to abandon the Lord our God, to live as we want, it's a call to repentance. You have not lived as God's children as you ought to. Sonship. That brings us to verses 24 to 26. Now, all the details of these verses we could talk about for days and, and come to no conclusion. And I'd rather avoid that. I think we can just simply take away this, the simple truth that's saying. That with every relationship we, we have, there are relational expectations. For example, a spouse ought to expect honesty and faithfulness. That's a good expectation to have, honesty and faithfulness, affection and attention. Yes? A friend should expect time and effort from a friend so that they can, they can share life, not just you know, catch up after everything has been done, but to, to be together in those moments of, that are life-defining, the ups and downs. A neighbor can expect you to, to do things that won't harm the neighborhood. Better yet, actually serve the neighborhood. To be a good neighbor. And those are good expectations to have in our relationships. Every relationship comes with expectations. Now, what is the expectation that God has of his children? Service, obedience. And here in this case, circumcision for Israel. Circumcision, as we understand it from Genesis 17, when God made that covenant with Abraham and his descendants, was to be a, a sign of that covenant. It was something they were supposed to do in light of the fact 
that God has brought them into a gracious relationship with him. But here's the thing. If they didn't do it, they were to be cut off. If they didn't do it, they were to be cut off. And we get a sense of just how seriously God took that in these verses. Who was it that uh, was circumcised? Was it Gershom or Eliezer? I don't know. Probably Gershom because later the firstborn become very important. Who did, who was touched with the piece of skin? It doesn't say. It just says him. I know our translation says Moses, but below it in the footnotes it says him. You can go on about the details, but simply the point is it hadn't been done and it needed to be done. And we just see how, how seriously God took it, that it had not been done. And what does that bring us to? It brings us to a very familiar place where we see the standard of God that is perfect, righteous, and holy on the one hand. And we see our unwillingness at times compounded with situational difficulties at times that make us unable to match those expectations. Where we come before God and we're saying, God, I've, I have no words to explain how I've fallen and how I've not reached what you've called me to do. Do you, do you still hear my prayer when I feel this way? I think that's an altogether familiar uh, place for us. When you feel like you have no right or place before God for him to hear you. Like a son or daughter estranged. It's like me when I was growing up, afraid to talk to my father after the report cards came home. I wasn't such a good student when I was really young. Hoping to you know, make up for it and then go talk to him. But not while he's angry or disappointed. So what do we do with that? Well, we go to a God who is greater than our conceptions of God. And this God, the one we see here, always planned for him to deal with our very sins. And he sent us his son, and get this, his son takes the place of true Israel to do what Israel could not do, and that was to offer perfect obedience in Israel's place. Hosea chapter 11 speaks about a, a, a broken Israel, a rebellious Israel that returns as a son to God. And that very chapter is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus is called back from Egypt and God says in Matthew's gospel that Hosea had been fulfilled. Now this Jesus who has become a true Israel, who fulfills the law, is the very same Jesus who goes into the wilderness for 40 days compared to Israel's 40 years, goes through the same tests, it's three kinds of tests, passes it as an obedient son who doesn't look to his own interests to serve himself, but serves the Lord, his God, his Father, all the way to the cross. 
And what do we see at the cross? We see the, the climax and the punctuating mark of that obedience. And that obedience was to die for our disobedience. The cutting off, if you should disobey, that's what Jesus experienced as he took our place on the cross. When he was saying on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He had taken our forsakenness. Every time you fear being cut off, well, that's what Jesus went through for you so that you yourself would never have to go through it. And that was God's design. That's what God the Father, Son, and Spirit had willed from all eternity. And that's what the Son was sent to do. That was the Father's will, and he did it for you, for you. He's a God who redeems so that you can pray all the time. Not just simply when you feel good about ourselves, yourself, but all the time, even in the midst of your sins. To beat your chest and say, Lord, I'm, I'm without words. All I can offer you are sighs of anguish. I, I can't believe I did it again. Rescue me, help me. It's a tragedy when we, after sinning, feel like we can't go to God in prayer. Because sin breeds more sin, does it not? And the only one who can rescue us from that terrible spiral is our God. And it is in the enemy's design that after we've sinned, we are made to feel like we can't go to him. That we can't go to our brothers and sisters who point us to him. And so we cloister ourselves and hide it. We let it fill up the closets and then the pantry and then all the spare rooms of our mind until we can't hold it any longer. And then we burn. But we're not meant to. We're not meant to burn with that anguish. We have a God and Father who has made a way for us to just go to him. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Don't, don't hesitate. Go at any time, all the time, to your Father, your redeeming God. Go with your brothers and sisters in prayer. He is that God. He is that good. When we make God in our image, our conceptions of God, are, they look like us, don't they? The person who's offended us, we're, we, we say to him, you did this, you make it right. You broke it, you fix it. And so when we come to God, we think he'll, he's just going to do the same thing to us because we made him in our, our image to be as merciless as we are at times. But that's not the God who is. And the God who is obliterates our tiny conception of God and he shows us mercy. And what lavish mercy. That we will never be forsaken, never be pushed off, never be cut off, never be rejected, never be unwelcome. Amen.
Now, what of this all-knowing God? I'm sorry, I, I just, I, I skipped over a quotation, and I really love it, love it, so I'm just going to backtrack two steps here. This is uh, from one of John Newton's hymns. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond all measure and serve him with our all. Amen. We come and we're, we're raptured by this love of God. And it becomes our pleasure and duty to serve him. Having been saved in Christ, adopted in Christ to be sons and daughters, that rapture, that love, it makes duty our pleasure. Having, be, having Becoming beholden to his, his glory and his beauty. Now, so we come to what about God being all-knowing? Well, we've been looking at Moses um, last week through Pastor Jeffrey and, and this week even here. I want to I show you something. In verse 18, Moses get, comes back to Jethro, his father, after having this long conversation with God where he drags his feet. <laughs> right? Not just drags his feet, but literally says, no, 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 you don't understand God, you don't understand. If you send me to them, they're not going to believe me. It's the most unbelievable story. I had an encounter with a bush that was on fire but not, wasn't burning. And this God told me that I'm going to defeat Egypt. Or he's going to defeat Egypt through little old me. He's going to bring a multitude of people out. It's not very believable, God. Can I also add, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. Don't send me. Right, he had that conversation. Now he comes to Jethro, and he doesn't tell Jethro much. He just says, uh, I need to go back to Egypt to see how my kinsmen are doing. Leaves everything else out. Almost like he's afraid Jethro will not believe him or maybe not even send his own daughter with Moses. And I think there's something to that because in verse 19, God has to reiterate that he's being sent to Egypt, but only this time he adds a detail. He says, everyone who's seeking your death has died. Now, that's pretty significant. That's significant because in those days, uh, we know from extant uh, documents, for example, uh, the practices of Ramses IV, that when a pharaoh was succeeded by another pharaoh, it was a custom for them to, to set prisoners free, to let exiles return, and people who were in hiding were allowed to come out. And so here's Moses who's in exile, and God's saying, look, if you won't trust me, and if that's not enough for you, look, they're dead. You know what that means, right? It's time to go back. And I just love that about our father. Can I just say that on the side? I love that about him. Our father is so thoughtful and so extravagant in his wisdom. 
something of an analogy there with even the way we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday. That's a gift. Because after the gospel is preached, if it doesn't make its way to your heart by what you hear, the Father brings you a meal and says, I love you. To hear that I love you by what you eat. To Moses, he's saying, I'll be there for you. You'll be okay. They're dead. You'll be okay. (laughs) You know, he goes that extra nine yards, if you will, for him. Moses continues to doubt, and God the Father is saying, I know. I understand. Sometimes we pray with such rapid succession that we don't stop and consider what it is we're praying. And I think we do that even with the Lord's Prayer. It begins, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If we, just, if we would just stop and pause there, we would understand why the following phrase is so natural. You're in heaven. You're heavenly. You have, you know better than I will ever know. It's not just a bird's eye view. It's that exalted view. You see, you see things from afar. Here's Moses saying, God, I don't think you understand. I don't think you know these people. I don't think you understand what I'm like and what they're like and what this situation is like and what you're asking me to do. And, and we do that, don't we, with the Father when he calls us to do something. We're just like, God, I know better than you. We forget that we bow our heads in prayer out of respect, not because God is below us. He's heavenly. He knows. He does not ask or command from a place of ignorance. He knows what you're going through. He knows the situation you face. He knows the concerns that are on Moses' heart. But he rightly commands it anyway. And should we have this, this, this glorious view of God replace our tiny conceptions of God, it leads us to a prayer much like that of our Lord at Gethsemane, where we, where we do very vulnerably and honestly ask God, if there is any way, Lord, let this cup pass from me. It's hard, Father. But then we say, but let your will be done. And there's a rationale for that prayer in light of what Jesus did for us, right? Because no one prayed for Christ to come. No one one imagined that God would do such an amazing thing for us. No one asked for that. No one thought of that. No one said, hey, God, I've got this great plan. Will you consider it? He did that. He did that. That was our Father thinking of us before we even thought to speak to him. And when we come to grips with that, we realize that his will is always so much bigger and better and more glorious than we could ever ask for. It's for our good. And that's what leads a heart that is like mine and perhaps like yours, to say, Father, as terrified as I am, 
let your will be done. Because it's good. It's always been good. Far more than I can ever imagine or expect or ask. It's good. So, Father, let your will be done. So good and so great is our Father's knowledge and and goodness towards us. That there is a peace in our prayer as we ask for his will to be done. Again, to connect this sermon with last week's sermon, Pastor Jeffrey very helpfully pointed out that the, the signs that God gave to Moses to show Israel and even to Pharaoh were signs that were meant to convey a very specific message that God is sovereign over these things. That's taken up a notch. Pharaoh, who was godlike to Egypt, he too is in the palm of God's hand. And that's verse 21. Pharaoh is also in God's hand. The most powerful person in this region is in his hands. His heart is in our Father's hands. That is a tremendous picture. It's more, it's, <laughs> I, I won't pretend that all my questions about this passage are answered. And I won't assume that they are for you either. I'm sure you have more, as do I. But the simple truth that we're supposed to walk away with in the midst of all this is that Pharaoh's heart was in the Father's hand. I will say just very quickly three things. It was a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That is to say that it's like heat to clay that was already molded. His character was already formed. It was just set in place. This is a man who, when he heard that Israel might want to go out for a few days and come back, he said, take away their straw. But keep the quota of bricks to be made the same. Let's break their backs and then they won't ask for anything. That's who he was already. I'll also say that this is not the first time and it won't be the last time that our sovereign God not only had someone sinning in his hands, but also utilizing that sin for a glorious salvation. It's not the first and it won't be the last. Most notably, we come to Christ, do we not? Where he says about Judas, it must be done, but woe to the person who does it. And likewise, Peter says in Acts, chap uh, Acts chapter, I want to say two, but it might be four. <laughs> Speaking to the Jerusalem crowd, you crucified him but it was always according to the will of our Father in heaven. And the third thing is really the point I wanted to make here. That's really what we're doing when we pray about the most meaningful, significant things in our lives. When we think about our nation, our neighbors, those who are vulnerable, those who are setting policy and just seem like they don't care 
we're asking God to change that circumstance. To be a shield and guard for the vulnerable. For policies to change, for our nation to be healed. We're really asking God for such a powerful movement that it changes people's hearts. That puts the hearts of even policymakers and leaders in his hand. we believe that our God can move all of that according to his will. And so we pray. We pray to a God who isn't detached and indifferent to our sufferings, but is close, who treasures us, who hears us, loves us, sees us, knows us, who in Christ has made us his children forevermore, never to be cut off, never to be lost, always to have a place at his table, carrying out his most excellent will for us, not just in our lives, but through our lives, for our neighbor's sake, for our community's sake, for Astoria's sake, who says, trust my strength. And pray. You join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we do just that. We pray to you. We pray, Lord God, that you would be lifted up and most glorious and exalted. For in you we find our refuge and the refuge of our hope. For our hope is assailed on every side. Our hope is assailed on every side. And we would be be tempted to tremble were it not for the canopy and fortress of your presence and promises to us in Christ. Thank you, Father. Hear our prayers, Lord, for our community, for our neighborhood, for our church. May you be the God of of those who are most hurt and vulnerable. And may we be a church for those who are most hurt and vulnerable here in Astoria. Lord, use us mightily. In Christ we pray. Amen.